Welcome to the Bean Holes Podcast. My name is Eric. This is uh, episode number 90, which is crazy to think that in just 10 short weeks, we'll be doing our 100th episode of the Bean Holes. Now, to be fair, to legitimacy, this would not be the 100th time me and Nate have recorded. Earlier on in the podcast, we had recorded a few episodes that just kind of got lost in the shuffle. We were very new to recording and uh, we were new to Podbean. And by then we didn't pay for the unlimited data. So we were only allowed a, a certain amount every month. And um, so, in you know, we, we're just we're treating this. This is our hundredth episode. This is our hundredth published episode of of the actual main Beanholes uh, podcast. So that's really cool. We're thinking about doing some kind of um I don't know, not really like a sweepstakes, but some kind of a fun little challenge on the 99th episode. Uh, maybe we'll pick a winner of of the fan base. We'll send a gift. If you have any ideas of something you might want to see as a, as a prize, like a, a game, a movie, uh, something signed by us... Send us a, a message on Twitter. Uh, if you're if you're following us on Facebook, send us a message. If, you, if you'd like to see anything, you know, prize, yeah, any type of prize giving out, we'd like to do something like that on our uh, 99th episode and announcing the winner on our 100th episode. So that'll be something cool. Um, you, we'll know more about that as we get closer to the 100th. But this episode, we are spending the 50th anniversary of Star Trek talking about the original show, everything from how it got started to the unused pilots, the 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 change-up of characters, and the the impact Star Trek had on television and, and pretty much the culture as a whole. It's actually pretty exciting. So this episode is brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash beanholes, you get a free 30-day trial of the Audible service. And and even if you don't continue with the service, you get to keep a free audiobook of your choosing. So don't forget that. Audibletrial.com slash beanhole. So without a further ado, let's dive into space as we uncharter new galaxies and whatnot. The Beanholes, episode number 90, Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, the original series. The bean holes, it's Eric and Nate. The bean holes, they're really pretty great. So shut up and listen to them talk. Eric and Nate. Ugh. Welcome to another episode of the bean holes. I'm Nate. I'm Eric. That was Eric's whistling. I just want to be clear about that. No, nope, but... a lot better than that. Uh, I have been training myself to use my belly button to whistle, and that was uh, the first live test. Thank you. Um, Fantastic, Captain. Oh, yeah. Uh, today we are attempting to talk about Star Trek, the original series. Um, and I just can't do it, Captain. <laughs> I, had a, I had a really, really, really <laughs> rough night. Let me just say... Practically, he's just going to be having diarrhea for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish, I wish that was all. But uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just say, if you have ever had to clean up your own vomit while still vomiting, <laughs> it's, you have some idea of what I went through. Last it's night. it's almost a waste of time. <laughs> you just almost. might as well see that's. Anytime I vomit, I prefer to just go into the shower. Gross. Yeah. Definitely not true. I would never do that to people. Yeah. 
that I want to admit to. It would have been better if I vomited in the shower yesterday. Cause <sighs> From the sound of it, it would have been better if you were in like a kiddie pool or something like that. <laughs> even You know what? Even just a regular backyard above ground pool. Yeah. Fortunately, most of my throwing up directly on the floor did... Uh, did land on. This is not a great way to start a podcast. Oh my god, I'm sick. Throwing up. Star Trek. So <laughs> awesome. Hey, look, they still get sick in space. Come on. Uh, there's never really. Well, they do, but it's only of unheard of things that they still find a cure for the same day. You also never see anybody take a dump in Star Trek, but I know it happens. Mm-hmm. Hey, did they ever show the bathroom? Sort of. They only in a way that. Well, in the original series, no. In Next Generation, there were a few times where it was kind of sort of clear that someone was in, like, standing in a bathroom. But yep. all you saw was a sink that wasn't, a, like, a countertop that wasn't a sink mm. in front of a mirror. And they made a lot of reference to the sonic showers. I don't know if they ever actually showed one, but okay. it's a well, shower that uses sound waves instead of water. That is fantastic. That's disappointing that they didn't try to show that. But anyway, this week we are talking about uh, Star Trek, the original series. This year it is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which is incredible. Um, uh, You know. It it really really is. It's uh, 50 years of really... When you you break down Star Trek, it's just one of those shows that have just been completely fan-driven in a way. Yeah. Yeah. now, of course, the fans don't have, you know, the greatest influence creatively, but because of the dedication of the brand, they, they've they just been pushing it past its expiration date that the uh, that the studios probably would have picked for it. Yeah. Um, and 50 years later, still coming out with new Star Trek uh, media, which is incredible. So yep. I almost sounded like a Shatner. It's very... <laughs> Incredible <laughs> that fifty years. Um. So yeah, it's uh, and and Star Trek, it appeals, I think, to a smaller but more, not always more dedicated, <laughs> a smaller group of 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 people than Star Wars does, for example. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Star Trek is there. There are things about it that are more complex. And uh, th- there's an element of some like th- there's more like politics and diplomacy in Star Trek, whereas Star Wars is like just an adventure. Right, right. And and that's really cool for like I'm not. Well, all in all, you're getting you're getting Star Wars in smaller doses. You know, you yeah. get you got a movie every few years, and then that was it. There was yeah. just three movies and a shitty holiday special. For most people, I mean, there's also people who've read. Hundreds upon hundreds of of novels. Absolutely, absolutely. But Star Trek was tried to do a little bit more, where they were trying to more of a drama of the everyday yeah. lives. In, Star Trek was really space. trying to present Gene Roddenberry's vision of like a wonderful future for humanity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really break the walls down in certain ways, especially yeah. during the time in the sixties. Uh, he he did some incredible things. Then, yeah, um, that still still speak to this day. Yeah. Um, so we'll go over all that. You bet it. You you bet it. You <laughs> bet it. Uh, <laughs> um, now, you know, science fiction itself is a kind of tough, uh, 
a, a tough form of fiction to get across to some people. Uh, where yeah. some people just aren't into science fiction, and the ones that are, some could be very picky. So yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of like, a lot of people would say Star Wars is not science fiction at all. Uh, um, it is. <laughs> it is. Um, it is a sci-fi. I, I would say that Star Wars helped to shift science fiction toward fantasy, and it was a good blend of the two. Oh yeah. Um, but it still is. Yeah. It's not hard sci-fi. It's not like exploring. It's not like hard sci-fi. Like all, the whole Star Wars universe would have been set up just so that we could examine like how C-3PO thinks, not not to follow a farm boy go on an adventure to yeah. save a princess. Arguing that <laughs> is like if you walked out of a comedy movie and you go, "Well, it didn't make me laugh, so therefore it's not a comedy." Well, no, it still is. You just didn't you laugh. You just at don't it. have that's, a sense of humor. Well, that's yeah, that's fine. So. Um, yeah, so Gene Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. Yep. Um, and did they give him credit for you know? I know he didn't really have a hand in a lot of other future characters, you know, in later series. He, I mean, but did they just give him like a generic like Star Trek was created by? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And the whole world was very much mapped out by him and and the people closest to him on the on the original series. And he was heavily involved in in the original series movies and the next generation movies and the creation of the next generation um, on TV uh, and continued to, to have the same kind of push for like diversity and tolerance and everything with the creation of, of the further series. And that largely came from him. Um, now Gene Roddenberry was born in 1921 in, at, in his parents' house, in their rented house in El Paso, Texas. So didn't even get born in a hospital. That probably explains why he spent the rest of his life uh, searching for ever-increasing sterile environments and creating them for, for us on TV. Wow. Um, so, yeah, he was a pilot for Pan American, uh, for Pan Am. And he was... <laughs> He was an L.A. cop uh, at the time that he was working on creating Star Trek. Um, as a matter of fact, he he I, I heard a story, I believe. Um, I believe I believe that um, I read this in one of Shatner's memoirs, one of his many memoirs. Yeah, but one of his earlier ones, probably. But he taught he kind of related the story of. Of Gene Roddenberry, um, not that he was there, but Gene, not that William Shatner was there, but Gene Roddenberry actually, like in full uniform as an LAPD officer, he he went to like TV executives. He found where they were in bars or you know wherever they like to eat lunch or whatever. Yeah, and he would come in as a police officer. While he was, I, I don't. I'm pretty sure it was even while he was on duty, but he'd like come in and walk right up to the person's table and be like, "You know, are you this guy?" and uh, and they'd be all scared, like they were under arrest or something. And he would drop the script for for the Star Trek pilot on their table, and um, but that's through Shatner. I heard, you know, I read this from something Shatner wrote down, 
as I understand it, Gene Roddenberry worked on other TV stuff before Star Trek. So, so I'm not sure that that's how he actually sold Star Trek He probably just Trek heard itself. he was a police officer and just came up with that story himself. Like, oh, well, then that's how he got this show on TV. He must have done yeah. this. And I Well, see, the thing is, he, he wrote scripts um, for a, a lot of other TV shows. Um, and he he had pitched a police series called Footbeat to CBS um, and it almost they didn't they didn't take it but it almost got into ABC's Sunday night lineup but they they in they decided that they were only going to show westerns so they like they killed that show um, but he worked on um, And he he worked with with Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly um, prior to Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, see, he made a um, he made a pilot called Three Thirty Three Montgomery, which was about a lawyer played by DeForest Kelly, who later went on to play Doctor McCoy. Um, he. When he was still trying to get sci-fi stuff going, he ended up uh, working on a show um, called The Lieutenant that was on NBC on Saturday nights. Yeah. Um, in starting in September 1963, uh, which did set a new ratings record for that time slot. So that's probably why he then quickly got to um, got to. Uh, you know, get people to be interested in Star Trek. Um, but he was uh, he, on the lieutenant. He worked with Leonard Nimoy, Nichelle Nichols, and uh, Majel Barrett, who later became Majel Barrett Roddenberry. And is uh, a lot of fans, a lot of casual fans don't realize that she played, I believe it was Nurse Chapel in the original series uh, while she was, while Roddenberry was married to someone else. Hmm. Um, and... Then she played Luoxana Troy, Deanna Troy's mother in Star Trek The Next Generation. And also, I believe through all, if not most, if not all of Star Trek The Next Generation, she was the voice of the computer, the ship's computer. Okay. That's um, not a bad and, gig. Yeah. And she was, she was Roddenberry's wife uh, at that time. Anyway. Um, so we're, we're not going to go too much about, about all the details behind everything leading up to Star Trek. Right, right. Well, we could have a whole episode on Gene Roddenberry, and maybe one day we, we will. But um, but his pitch for Star Trek was its wagon train to the stars. So basically, he was kind of selling it as... He was, he was selling it as a frontier television show, um, yeah, which was a popular form of, of, of a slight variation on the Western genre, that was very popular at the time of just the idea of exploring America when there was nobody else out there. Right. And Westerns were incredibly popular at the time. Yeah. And all in clear, all. So to be clear, I'm speaking about the attitude of the time. Of course, we know that there were, there were people already all over America, but that was the attitude of the, you know. Well, also back then, most people just kind of. You know, you were born in an area and like most people would just stay yep. in their comfort zone. So watching a TV show about characters exploring, not, you know, not 
all the stuff before Star Trek, just watching characters like explore America. Like it was exciting for people, you know. Yeah. Ooh, they're doing things I'll never get to do. And, you know, then Star Trek comes along and you're doing things we're never going to do in our lifetime. Yep. But uh, that's a great way to sell it, especially at the time. That was very smart of him. Um, and, you know, it was the whole idea was that this would be an optimistic show about the future of humanity. And, um, and he was signed, um, you know, he, he pitched Star Trek to MGM and they liked it, but they didn't really make an offer. Um, then he went to Desilu Productions, which Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Yeah. Um, Lucy. Yeah. And, and up, their only success at the time was I Love Lucy. They were working on other stuff, but like a lot of newer production companies, they they were still trying to find what really worked and and what what hit and weren't having all the luck in the world. So they um, they started working with him and and uh, they hired him as a producer to work on his own project, but not necessarily to do Star Trek. But and mind you, back then and even up till the birth of like online internet stuff, you you were at the mercy of studios to get things done. Yeah. Even now, you know, you got somebody, um, you know, what what's his name who directed uh who made Buffy and uh Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon. When he wants something done, if he can't get it on television and it's a small enough budget, they could, oh, we'll just, we'll film it and put it online. Mm -hmm. Back then, there was just no other, like, you had yeah. to get this on for producers. Well, even, yeah, I mean, nowadays, everybody has a camera in their pocket that's pretty fucking good. Back so, then, just having a camera was a huge issue. Like, yeah. Let yeah. alone a way to distribute what you came up with. Um, so anyway... Uh, there was there was a little bit of controversy because because uh, he he went to Oscar Katz um, who was the head of uh, head of programming for Desilu and they started uh, started working on a plan to sell Star Trek to the networks and they took it to CBS initially CBS passed on it and they later found out that the only reason they had the meeting is because CBS was already w starting to work on Lost in Space and they wanted to hear ideas for Star Trek so that they could, one, find out how much alike are these and two, are there good ideas we can steal? Um, right, right. And, now, during this point, did they did they film the pilot episode? Um, well, they, they did soon after. It's just, first, they went to ABC. Yeah. Um, and... And like I said, they sold as Wagon Train to the Stars. They were really downplaying the science fiction elements and, and compared it to Gunsmoke and Wagon Train so that, like, people would be like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I see this. This really is a frontier show, and people will like it, and we can put it on with our frontier shows. Um, and so ABC funded three stories at story ideas, and then they selected one called The Menagerie to be made into a pilot. Um, mena the Menagerie is now known better as the cage um, yeah. uh, which surprisingly doesn't have some of the characters the majority that, we, of the characters. Yeah. that we've known to love yeah. the like, cage of course yeah go ahead no the the original captain i, I mean, everyone knows the the cap the original captain of the enterprise is kirk but in this pilot mm -hmm. it was actually pike yeah who, and if you delve into the the you know the canon of the show that still is he was, you know, Kirk wasn't given a brand new Enterprise 
he was the current captain, right? And Pike had been captain before him. Which, if you're somebody like my cousin who only knows the the rebooted movies, they they ended up using Pike as as like a, a leader in the yep. in Starfleet. Yep. So they they brought that character back, but yeah, that was he the, was actually the he, actually in the reboot he was the captain of the Enterprise. At oh the start. yeah, there you go. So yeah, they still kept that character. He was play, he was uh, portrayed by Jeffrey Hunter, mm-hmm. but I don't think he worked out very well. As far as what I've read, I've never seen the pilot episode, but it just seemed um, the only other character I'm really I mean, Spock was there. Leonard Nimoy was Spock in the original pilot episode. Yep. Um, and any other characters really seem familiar? Uh, no. It, see, in this first pilot, Spock was not even the second in command. Um, yep. He was he was he was a science officer, but the second in command was a woman, which was something that um Oh, I'm such an idiot. Major Barrett, <laughs> the one I was talking about having played Nurse Chapel and yeah, uh, it, you know, many num- other. She was, she played number one. So that was her name, number yeah, one. Yeah. Um, and, nice to meet you, number two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was like Pike's right-hand woman, uh, and that was a big thing that, that Gene Roddenberry had pushed for. Um Networks weren't quite ready for that. So, um, <laughs> whoa, buddy, a woman <laughs> second in command? Uh, you know, put her near the bottom of that ladder. <laughs> the, the only way, place a woman can be second in command is in the home. I, even then, dog comes next. And we're downplaying, like, the seriousness of how, how, uh, the the time they were definitely weren't that comedic with their yeah. sexism. It was pretty much out in the open of like, why the fuck are you putting a woman in second in command? And, yeah. uh, you know, but but see, this is a testament to Gene Roddenberry going out this whole, throughout this whole series, which we'll get into, is as he was really pushing the envelope yeah. in the pilot episode of this series that he was getting a woman as second in command in the 60s it's incredible yep so he tried he really tried um but uh so yeah they they didn't like that that pilot right too much um or just didn't work out and i don't know what the pro like i don't think there was one main problem i know that they didn't really like um Jeffrey Hunter as the lead. Yeah, it just it didn't it just didn't all really come together as far as the network was concerned. Um, now, to to be clear, the original story idea was called the Menagerie. Yeah, the pilot itself was named the Cage, but ultimately, uh, it was uh, footage from this pilot that was unused. Ended up some of the footage ended up being used in the two part episode that was called the menagerie uh so it's back to the original name for for the two-part episode that they had during the first season um so so that can be a little confusing but anyway um as you said captain was christopher pike not james kirk spock was present not as the first officer um the whole the whole starfleet was just different yeah and spock appeared um you know, le- less reserved and less logical. They hadn't fully developed the Vulcan idea. And um, uh, so NBC called the pilot too cerebral, too intellectual, and too slow with not enough action. Uh, and for the first time in the history of television, rather than saying this pilot's no good, we don't want the show, they said, why don't you make another pilot? 
Like th- this shows a lot of promise. Try again. And that had never been done uh, in the history of television. Yeah, that that really is incredible that they, uh, you know. And here's the thing: I just watched a, a Watch Mojo video that said top ten movies that that sh- that should be remade. And the whole point was when you watch something and you know that there's something there, it just wasn't hitting right. And that that just reminded me like they clearly knew there was something there. Just redo it again. Yeah. Um. That happens a lot in Hollywood these days, where something a pilot is filmed, doesn't work out, and you know the studio just try it again in a few years until we get it right. Yep. Um. So, so no. <laughs> no, what were you gonna say? I was just gonna talk a little bit about the the new pilot, the second pilot that actually got the the show on the air. Um. So, uh, so it was actually, the, believe it or not, it was Lucille Ball herself who convinced NBC management to consider a second pilot. But, um, boss, <laughs> <laughs> like, we're not going to continue with Star Trek. <laughs> like, Lucille, please, don't, come on, <laughs> stop it. Um, and so it was. It was Lucille Ball from I Love Lucy. Fucking was, a. was the uh, she's like the patron saint of women in comedy. She's the one that liked Star Trek so much and liked Gene Roddenberry so much that she convinced NBC to do something nobody had ever done in the history of television. I got to imagine at some shot. point they honored her with some ship name or something. They're called something Lucy or yeah. Somewhere there's just got to be not even in the original series, just somewhere along the line of Star Trek. There's got to be some kind of hint. Yeah, of Lucille Ball. We should look into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, the the new pilot was called "Where No Man Has Gone Before." Um, it ended up. This is funny. It's it was the second pilot episode, but when they actually aired the TV series, it was the third episode of the series. So that's weird. Yeah. Nowadays, like back then, people didn't like the average public, the average member of the public didn't even know what a TV pilot was because the pilot often was not the first episode of the series. Right. Um, and in some, this happens a lot with, I've seen with cartoons. Yeah. Uh, the Fairly Odd Parents, for example, started as like a, a group of like five shorts that yeah. Nickelodeon had on a, on a short show. And when they picked it up as a series, there was a few episodes throughout the first season where instead of having a new, they, it was just like, Timmy going like, hey, remember that time that that happened? And then they would play the short again. So they would just play the pilots again, like, you know, as like, oh, this is a new episode. (laughs) So. Um, So. So we've got this was when we were introduced, um, not not when the general public was, but when the network executives were introduced to uh, William Shatner as Captain James Kirk. James Captain James T. Kirk. Come on now. Can't. What's the T stand for? Tiberius. You are correct. Fucking A. Um, I was certain you wouldn't even know that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, anytime I know that someone's middle name is initial, wow. What the <laughs> fuck did I just What's say? What's initial? <laughs> What's, <laughs> anytime I know that someone's middle initial is T, but I don't know what their name is. You always say Tiberius. I, I always, in my head, they're always Tiberius, and then I will immediately start trying I'm to convince f- other people. That that's what their middle name is. <laughs> um, so, 
Anyway, yeah, so he's Captain James T. Kirk. James Dewan is Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott. Of course, we know him better as Scotty and the biggest Scottish stereotype on television. Oh, absolutely. Willie. To this day. Um, George Takei as Sulu. Mr. Uh, Social Media. Very popular. <laughs> he's probably he's honestly probably more known now for his Facebook posts than oh, yeah. being Sulu from, no, from Star Trek. I, I have many friends that like uh, I'll be, I'll say something like you know oh hey did you hear that uh, George Takei isn't happy about you know them making Sulu gay in the new movie and they're like oh, what the fuck who who gives a fuck what he has to say about it like why is that news and I'm like. Oh my! You, yeah, you you know he played Sulu originally. They're like, really? And I'm like, <laughs> it's the only reason he's famous. Like, <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, Lieutenant Sulu. Yep. And in the pilot, he's the ship's physicist. Um, but in in the series, they ended up. Uh, I wonder if I think they do make reference to it at some point that he's the ship's physicist. So it's just in the third episode of the whole series, he's the physicist. But in the first <laughs> and second and all subsequent episodes, he got demoted that he's, day. He's the helmsman. Um, he uh, he accidentally flew him in a meteor shower, and they're like, "Sulu, you're a physicist next <laughs> week." So the, the the idea of the pilot is the USS Enterprise is on an exploratory mission to leave the galaxy. That ultimately, through the series, it was not about leaving the galaxy. It was about exploring the galaxy. Right, and, um, and sending research back to yeah. Earth. Um, like, hey, this is what's out there. So they come across a damaged ship recorder from the SS Valiant, an Earth spaceship last, last 200 years ago. The uh, record is incomplete, but it reveals that it had been swept from its path by a magnetic space storm. And the Are we going to continue the, the our, our Starfleet cast here? We got Kirk, we got Scott, we got Sulu. Mm -hmm. Forgot Dr. McCoy, played by DeForest Kelly. Well, no, let me just say. Yeah. Lieutenant Ohura and Dr. Leonard McCoy do not feature in this episode. That's why I didn't introduce them yet. Ah, um, okay. They had Mark Piper as, as uh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Paul, Paul they Fix. They had Paul Fix playing Mark Piper. How did that guy not go on to have like a a construction show with a, with a fucking name like Paul Fix? Yeah. Um, so he played the the ship's doctor. Um, uh, DeForest Kelly had been considered for the role, but he didn't. He actually didn't get cast in in the in either the first or the second pilot. Um, uh, Gary Lockwood plays Lieutenant Commander Gary Mitchell, um, and. This is the same guy that had starred in as the lieutenant in the lieutenant, the other Roddenberry show I had talked about. Yeah. Um, uh, Sally Kellerman was Elizabeth Denner. Um, and uh, they had Paul Carr as navigator Lee Kelso, Lloyd Haynes as communications officer Alden, and Andrea Drum as Yeoman Smith. Um, and... Uh, and, and and that's it. So we didn't have... Chekhov was not introduced to the series for quite a few episodes. Yeah, I, I don't think until the second season, actually. Yeah. Um, so, of course... Um, of course, in the rest of the series, we have L Lieutenant Ahura, played by Nichelle Nichols, and Dr. McCoy, played by DeForest Kelly. Great name, by the way. 
Yeah, it is. That's a pretty, <laughs> bad, a pretty badass name. Um, uh, and then um, Walter Koenig. Koenig as, uh, as Chekhov. Pavel Chekhov. Eventually. Pavel. 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 Um, with a very fake Russian accent. Nobody from Russia actually talks like that. So we got Asia, <laughs> Scotland, Russia. Mm-hmm. Uhura, probably... I did she ever say you know? I'm trying to remember my the the what canon they had. They I don't know that they even really specifically said during the original series because I want to say that they've covered every continent almost. Just about. I believe she is supposed to be from Africa. Because if that's the case, you got Africa, you got Europe, Asia. Yep. yep. Uh, America, I'd probably put Kirk. They did say he was right from. He's from the Midwest. Yeah, he's yep. from the Midwest. Uh, South America is the one that. Yeah. I don't think they they had anybody. I mean, Khan he was more of a, Khan a was, Spanish. No, Khan was supposed to be a Sikh. They uh, had him played by by somebody. Ricardo Montalban, but <laughs> what a great but he was name. yeah he was supposed to be a Sikh. <laughs> okay. Uh, well then, no, no no one from you know what Spock's from Antarctica is very cold. Oh. Spock is from the planet Vulcan. I understand that. I know that. Either. He's the only one on that ship that's mainly. Like he is the alien. He's the only main cast member, member that, that is, is alien. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, and he's the yeah, he's the first officer, second in command, right under right under Kirk, and that's where a lot of the uh, conflict, well, conversation comes through with them between Kirk and Spock because we should explain Vulcans. Are a Vulcans have suppressed their emotions and they they their logic is basically their religion. Yeah. Their um, heart is only there to pump blood. It's not there to, to interfere fear. with anything. Did they ever say in the original series that he's half human? Or is that just in this rebooted series? Is oh they, no, no, no. That's 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 true in the original series. Okay. So um, yeah. So he's there are points that they can kind of get to him yeah. emotionally, but for the most part he's just a He's logical. Well, actually, I mean, in the original series, through most of the original series, um, it was more. It was more about they. They kind of said like Vulcans don't have feelings, but they did touch on it a little bit. And then certainly in in books and the animated series and further movies and further series that get into Vulcan life. It just becomes more and more clear that Vulcans, it's not that they don't have emotions. It's that they have such powerful emotions that they have to uh, kind of make it their life's work to suppress them in order to get anything done at all. Uh, and that they were extremely warlike centuries ago, if not millennia ago. And and it took basically their Jesus, Surak, to come up with this whole, like focus and logic thing <laughs> um <clears throat> now uh and and that works really well because the dynamic of the original series moving on for who gives a fuck about this other pilot let's talk about the series as a whole yeah, yeah. The, the series as a whole the original series is kirk spock and mccoy are really all main characters yeah like they they share they share the lead, really. In the 25th anniversary NES game for Star Trek, those those are the three characters you play as. Yes, yeah. you know that's it. Um, now they they were actually they're written 
to represent like the conflict and decision making process of the human brain. Uh, Kirk is the, the you know makes the executive decisions. He makes the big decisions, but you've got Spock arguing logically, scientifically, mathematically, um, and coldly. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. and McCoy being very passionate and emotional, um, and Kirk listens to both of them argue with each other and presenting their cases to him, and then makes his decision from there. Um, so it's it's very interesting. Um, doesn't make sense that a ship's doctor has that much input in command functions. If you're looking at it from a purely military standpoint, yeah, but he was friends. He was <laughs> the the, I, the dynamic they made across was that they were already they were friends. Yeah, so that's why, you know, the doctor has at least somewhat say because he's friends with the captain. Like, yeah. you know, hey, buddy, you should listen to me. And yeah, and some of that dynamic t- did did continue through to the um, the next generation as well, where it, it was. You, they had data there to serve that function of being the cold, logical uh, person. Right. But they, they split it up a bit more, basically, and allowed, you know, uh, having having Worf be all about, you know, the security and, and willingness to fight and, um, and Counselor Troy being that emotional appeal um, and Dr. Crusher being more about being sympathetic more than overall other emotions and yep um and even Wesley Crusher being like you know having the childlike sense of wonder and everything that that was a function he seemed to fill but back to the original series um as we said uh we've got you know we've got Uhura and McCoy joining the crew for the, for all of the first season other than the third episode slash second pilot. It's kind of complicated. <laughs> um, and then for the second season, as you said, we had Walter Koenig come on as a regular cast member um, for uh, to play Pavel Chekhov. Um, now, the reason they brought him on was basically the monkeys were popular and somebody was just like, we need to get a guy on here that looks like Davy Jones so that we can get the girls wanting to watch the TV show a lot more. Um, and that's that's the whole point. They just got... Basically, they, they set out to find a cute little guy with big puffy red lips. That really, <laughs> like That was their mission. That's um, fantastic. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and made sure his hair looked like Dave, Davy Jones. Um, and it did, that did not quite save the show. Uh, ratings were fairly good, very dedicated base of fans. Oh my God. Yeah. They, that, that's one of the, one, one of the things I said earlier that the fan support here, um, beyond sending, le- I, I believe NBC has said that, that the letters were second only to the monkeys. Yeah. Um, but that fans would do other shit. I, I, I know that there is one thing where they just had um, a line of mail trucks just mm-hmm. to deliver Star Trek letters to NBC. Yep. Um, but p- fans also would start little campaigns like um, 
putting bumper stickers uh, like we want Spock and Vulcans, like anything that they could put on a bumper sticker, they would just go to the executive's cars and just cover their bumpers in like Star Trek, pro Star Trek bumper stickers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which it's insane. It's insane the lengths that people went through to make sure the show, because even by the end of the first season, there were, you know, some rumors it was going to get canceled. So they, they pushed. And then even during season two, uh, I believe even, uh, uh, what's it, William Shatner prepared other things because he figured season two would be it. Yeah. Um, and yet the fans really, really uh, pulled out all the stops, got a third season made, and then they tried again when it was, it didn't work ever again. <laughs> yeah, and just so you know, at the time, the Smithsonian Institute asked for a print of the show for its archives, and at that point, it was the only television show yep. uh, of that honor. Yep. Which yep. is insane because there are shows that came out before Star Trek that were pretty influential in our, you know, I Love Lucy being one of them, but that that was the one show because of fan support that they were like, we, you know, we want to keep this just in case, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, there, it was not popular enough to keep on the air, but it was powerful enough and influential enough that even going into the 80s with... Um, you know, coming into the late 70s and early 80s, they brought, they were able to start making movies um, that for a show that had been off the air for, for yeah, years. Yeah, and, and well, You know, it ended in 69. Yep. You know, they tried two seasons of an animated show in 73. Go, okay, well, let's, let's try this animated. And, and that didn't catch on as well, but they were still trying because there was just such a popularity on the show. Yeah. And the movies are just, it's incredible how it's six, six and a half movies out of this, yeah. out of, out of this original concept. Yeah. Um, hey, Shatner was great in, in, and, and so was everyone else that played a bit part in the beginning, but they were great in Star Trek Generations, but well, that's I, why wouldn't, I, said, I wouldn't give I them said half. Six, I said six and a half just uh, because. say six and a quarter. Okay. Six and a quarter. Because <laughs> Generations is a next generation movie, yeah. but it does pull from the uh, the original series. Um, so let's talk about the theme, the the, the theme from Star Trek. Yeah, um, yeah. That is the name of the, the show. Or, wow, that is the name of the the song, <laughs> the theme from Star Trek. Um, there, People that have never watched an episode of the show still know the theme. It's, it's, it's distinctive. Um, now, what I want to talk about is, well, there's a couple things. Um, there's, on the theme for the show, it is a wordless melody line uh, with a full orchestra. And uh, it was initially sung by the soprano, famous soprano, uh, Luli Jean Norman. Um, but with flute and organ also playing the same parts that she sang. Yeah. And it all got mixed together to make, uh, you know, the, the idea was to try to create an, a unique, um, ethereal alien sound. So no one would know quite what that instrument is. Yeah. Um, now, they, they went back and forth because, like, they recorded it with a very good mix of all three. So you couldn't really tell what stood out more than the others, even if you know, knew what all the instruments were. 
um, they did that for the cage, the the first pilot. Uh, for uh, you know, for further episodes in the first season, um, Gene Roddenberry had the mixed the mix changed so that the female vocal was more prominent mm-hmm. and it became more clearly just you know though that's a woman singing um and and uh, Alexander Courage is the name of the guy that wrote the thing um and also wouldn't surprise me at all if it became a Nickelodeon show at some point um <laughs> maybe a Henry Danger spin-off ooh there you go <laughs> Um, so Alexander Courage wrote the theme. He did not like the new mix that was done without his knowledge. Um, and, uh, and he just thought it sounded like a soprano solo. But whatever, that's how it was through the first two seasons. Then for the third season, it was remixed again. And this time they emphasized the organ. Um, so, uh, oh, but not only that, <laughs> um, the after the first season, Norman's vocals were dropped. Um, the the woman the woman who had originally done the vocals, they were dropped because she had been hired under a Screen Actors Guild agreement, so that she that stated that she would receive fees every time it was that the show was rerun. So they dropped her vocalization from the theme. Yeah. Um, Alexander Courage was not even informed that that was done. Uh, and they, uh, that, and also they removed it, they removed the original version with the original artists singing. They removed that from older episodes for like all future reruns used a version that did not have, have, uh, have Norman's voice on it. And so she missed out on all the, all that money. Oh, wow. Speaking of which, I said it was wordless, but... Gene Roddenberry also made sure to screw over Alexander Courage a little bit um, to get himself a little more money. <laughs> By um, here's the fun thing: when a song is submitted for copyright, yep. And this was done by, you know, the network paid for the the copywriting and everything. When a song is commit, submitted for copyright, the composer or you know whoever is listed on there gets you know the whoever wrote the song basically gets a fair chunk okay if three people work on a song together and submit it for copyright then they each get a third you know and and there's some various ways you can choose to split it up a little differently but the point is what Gene Roddenberry did he realized because he had he was in charge of getting this thing submitted he realized that he could make himself a little bit more money if he could get his name on there as a co-writer of the song. So he wrote lyrics that are awful. Um, and, and he, when he submitted the copyright paperwork, Alexander Courage was listed as the composer. Gene Roddenberry is listed as the lyricist. Um, and so even though no one has ever heard the song done with lyrics, uh, not officially, anyway. Yeah, uh, Gene Roddenberry gets fifty percent of all the money because he quickly jotted down shitty words and made then made sure they were never used with the show because he even he didn't like them. It was just like 
I'll write some words. Now I wrote half the song. Now I get the money. So after this guy <laughs> made this great iconic theme, Roddenberry spent about five minutes, got 50%, didn't tell the guy until a- after it all been done. Um, but he said, you know, it's Star Trek. I got to make money somehow. Like, I, I know it's not going <laughs> to... It's not going to actually give me money as a TV show. Um, That's a smart guy, though. So let me see. Can I pull up the lyrics? It'll take me a minute. Um, I'll see if I can do it while I keep talking. But uh, the the song has, has been uh, covered quite a bit. In the 70s, Nichelle Nichols, a.k.a. Uhura, recorded a disco version of the song with different lyrics than the ones I was just talking about. Uh, Van McCoy, on his al- on the album The Real McCoy, released an instrumental disco version. Todd Rundgren's band Utopia released a disco version in 1976 on their album Disco Jets. Uh, let's see. The actual United States aircraft carrier Enterprise yep. used the theme as their breakaway music. They actually play music like as they leave port and go off to, you know, do their missions and stuff. Right. They actually used the Star Trek theme as a breakaway mission until it was replaced by the theme from Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, it's not bad actually. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Uh, there's a fusion version by jazz trumpeter Maynard Ferguson. Uh, it, that was later used as the opening thing for the Larry King show on the Mutual Radio Network. <laughs> um, I mean, Larry King looks like an alien from Star Trek, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Uh, in 92, Australian, wow, Austrian dance act Edelweiss had a hit with the number Starship Edelweiss, which used the theme. Uh, of course... Dana Carvey as Garth Algar whistles it in Wayne's World while they're lying on top of the the hood of an AMC Pacer. Yeah, staring uh, at the stars. Shatner and operatic singer Frederica von Stade performed a live version at uh, the 2005 Emmys. Shatner's part was just to say his lines that always got played over it in the the show. Yeah. Uh, 2003 was finally played on theremin that was the theremin is definitely the otherworldly sound they were already going for um and figures prominently in a lot of sci-fi stuff uh it's in the film rv jeff daniels character has an rv where he honks the horn and it plays that um there were ads for the hummer h3 using it um there was the wake-up call for for the space shuttle atlantis um, like it was everybody's alarm clock on the space shuttle Atlantis. Uh, uh, it's still used a lot. Yeah. Tenacious D has covered the theme live with, with the original lyrics written by Roddenberry. Um, so yeah, let's, um, let's, let's touch a bit on the inclusionism of the show yeah. and the, the impact it had. Uh, um, this is how, like, this is the way, the distinctive way in which Star Trek has been most groundbreaking is how what you know some people would say is politically correct but it's it's genuine you know it's not like it's it's not let's just throw an asian character in there so we can have another asian character on tv it, you know there's 
a point, a reason to represent every inhabited continent on the on the planet. If and, if that's politically correct, then just don't wake up in the morning because then everything doesn't make sense. Like <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, that, the the stuff they did. Now the the show had at some in in an episode, uh, Captain James Kirk kiss. Yep. Uhura. Yep. Who was black? Kirk was white. It was the first. Time on television history that there was an interracial kiss. Yes. Now, which few funny details about that actually. And when that happened, collectively thousands of KKK members' heads exploded <coughs> all over their white suits. Um, and not only that, but fifty percent of the engineers at NASA quit. Yeah, I totally that. made that up. But you know what? That's something that somebody would hear. They're not going to do research on that, but they'd go, holy shit, man, NASA's racist. <laughs> no, no, but... Um, uh, but let me tell you a few things about this. First of all, the they only were allowed to make this kiss happen. Um, the only reason it was allowed to air was because they were being forced to do it under alien mind control. Um, the censors right. were like, well, since it's not really them doing it, it's not actually like this is a horrible thing that's happening to the two of them. Just think okay. about how racist that is. Well, under normal circumstances, there's no way that a white man would kiss a black woman. Right. So under mind control, I guess that makes yeah. sense. It's basically like it's wrong for a black woman and a white man to kiss Unless they're also both sort of being raped at the same time. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's technically a gun pointed at him, so I'd understand why they do that. So racist, but you know what? It still made its way on screen. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the characters and story were doing. It's still the first interracial sure. kiss. But let me tell you this: this took the work of of Shatner and Nichelle Nichols working together, as well as the the. I mean, Roddenberry and the director of the episode also had to have been on board with this. Um, the network wanted two versions of the scene yep. shot, one of them being altered to not have them actually kiss. Right. It's, so Spock, that it's Spock that takes Uhura's spot. <laughs> there was a lot of people <laughs> that would be very happy for that. Um, uh, as a matter of fact... People wanting Kirk and Spock to get together in some, in a, you know, sexually, romantically, whatever. That's basically what created slash fiction and fan fiction was people writing stories. Like that was the big thing that people <laughs> wrote all kinds of crazy stories about. Um, and and uh, just it doesn't go there, Kirk. That's most illogical. <laughs> but anyway, the network wanted. Of to be able to air a different version in in different markets, they wanted to say like, oh well, you know, in in the South here, that you know, the, our Alabama affiliate is not gonna let that go on the air. Like that'll get they'll be too pissed off at us. So we need you to shoot a different scene. And they were actually gonna break it up and show different things to different areas of the country. Like if somebody wasn't if somebody wasn't comfortable with that episode they could go, "Okay, well we have this one, it's altered. Yeah. Here's a different version." Yeah. And they would um Oh, that's much better. Huh? So they went ahead and shot the different versions, but they made sure that the way that that Kirk and Uhura like the way their lines were delivered and stuff, they made sure that it was so bad that that nobody would want 
the cleaned up version. That's, they that's just, smart. Yeah, it was like really bad acting, actually getting lines wrong on purpose and just dumb. And so ultimately the network just didn't even want that version. Um, they were so like, they, fuck. Yeah. Through the power. like I, That's one of the few times that William Shatner actually improved society through the power of bad acting. Thank you. Thank you, Shats. <laughs> um, now, th- speaking of Ahura, at one point she was thinking about yeah, leaving Nichols, the show. She, she was, if you really look, especially during the actual original series, the first three seasons of Star Trek, um, Uhura's character serves virtually no function. She repeats something someone else said, or she answers the phone for Captain Kirk, and that's about it. Like, she's just... Nichelle Nichols felt very much like a background prop, like a the token black character, and she did not feel valued as a member of the cast. Um, and this, of course, was during... Especially during the earlier seasons. Um, it actually took a call from Martin Luther King Jr. himself. Yeah. Um, he, he spoke with her on the phone and said, like, it doesn't even matter. Like you, the, you the might, fact, yeah, the you fact might, that you're there yeah. is amazing. Yeah. You being there as a black woman, as the, the bridge officer of, of, you know, of, of a starship starship. Yeah. That alone, just you being there, has more of a positive impact on, on, you know, just the think about issue. little black girls watching TV and seeing you there. That gives them something to identify with, to aspire to, um, and that has that's more powerful than any statement you would be, you'd be able to make by leaving the show. And she ended up sticking with it and. Her role was expanded a little bit, and then it was in by the time of the movies, um, she was certainly uh, a you more know, welcomed member. Yeah, and and more competent, and they, you know, they really made in books and the later movies, they really worked to um, make it clear that the communications officer of a starship is an insanely difficult job, and you have right. to know multiple languages and operate very complicated equipment and all that um so well, that's good <laughs> um let's go on to william shatner here for a second yep william shatner is a fucking dick <laughs> <laughs> love the guy but shat's a dick man yeah I, I don't know what to say, tell you um as as we already said the show really from the start was about about the three main characters working together to to operate um and of course william shatner just wanted to be the star and and yeah oh he was probably getting laid so much during star trek that he was just like this is my meal ticket right here i'm on tv (laughs) every week i'm the good looking guy i'm the main character i don't give a shit about anyone else on this bridge (laughs) so um i like literally that was his attitude yeah (laughs) um James Doohan, in particular, but everyone at one point or another, uh, really found it nearly impossible to even talk to Shatner, to to interact with him at all, except in their scripted lines. Um, 
And yeah, there's there seems to be this very big disconnect between Shatner and the rest of the the cast. Because as far as I know, even when George Takei was married in 2008, I don't think he invited William Shatner. And if I uh, if I remember correctly, I think every other cast member yeah. was at that wedding. Well, yeah. <laughs> or at least where they were invited if they weren't physically there. But William Shatner, I don't even think, was invited. Um, the funny thing is, I think I heard that... Um, he made a big deal about not being invited, and he actually even was invited. That, that yeah, that sounds more like it. Because he publicly, publicly, he was like furious, you know, like this TMZ type stuff, where like, uh, you know, Shatner insulted by not being invited to Takei wedding. Like yeah. that would be the, the the thing. And you're right, just thinking about it, because hey, I don't think George Takei has ever really come out against him. But it's just been one of those things right. where, like, eh, you yeah, know, no, it's kind it's, of a dick. There have been some very diplomatic, yeah, yeah, very diplomatic things <laughs> said. But, um, uh, and for the most part, you know, from what I understand, he was just kind of clueless about all of it. And, uh, yep. you know, which it, I imagine that very fact is more infuriating. You know, it's it's like when you, when you, uh, you run into your old, like elementary school bully and you're like you ruined my fucking life and they're like who are you like that's that's way worse <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, um when i think of william shatner uh, how he acts and then think of J james kirk i think of uh zap brannigan from futurama well i mean would, he certainly was was created that character was created largely to make fun of of captain kirk and and william shatner yeah so, but that makes sense <laughs> Uh, completely just basically a parody on the on the character the the man in charge of the ship you know <laughs> carrying his balls in a wheelbarrow yes <laughs> but um well i'll just say although you know there there was there was even a time that Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner did not get along and did not speak uh, although eventually the two really did become best friends and more than anyone else had to, you know, had their entire life viewed like from, for the rest of the public was viewing their entire life through the lens of like, this is Kirk, this is Spock. Like, right. You know. Right. And even though William Shatner has been able to find other work in other ways, um, a lot of the others have not. <laughs> oh, and, and it comes to Leonard Nimoy and we, we had our whole, if you've, if you're a new listener, one of our earlier episodes, we did one right after um, Leonard Nimoy had, had passed away. We did mm -hmm. an episode about him, his life. And in that episode, we covered a lot on the, the typecasting that that man really went through for that character. Because out of everybody on that show, Spock is the standout character of, of like, when you talk to people, like, my mother probably knows Spock. You know, right. if I said, who's Captain Kirk? She'd be like, I don't know, like, Spock? Oh, Star Trek. Like, right. <laughs> um, so... But Leonard Nimoy was, you know, what was it? He even wrote a book that said, I am not Spock Yeah. at one point and then kind of over years just came to terms with it. Yeah. And wrote a book called I am Spock. Like, yeah, hey, you know what? I'm fine. So, but um, yeah, a lot of the cast members on that show really, really suffered. Everybody, everybody. Everybody other than, other than Shatner. It, Shatner as well. But he was, he was able to get TJ Hooker at least. And, yep. um, 
and then have the a lot of work. The negotiator. Well, he, he had a lot of work just playing himself in movies and TV shows, um, whereas most of the others, like Leonard Nimoy, actually may have even gotten more work than William Shatner. But yeah. it was it always was it it was always like, oh, we'll put him in because he's Spock. Like Yeah, people will recognize him. Yeah. Um and I thought he was great in Fringe, for example. Yeah. He played, he yeah. Playing a very human character. I but. thought he I thought he played a, a good villain in Transformers three. Yep. Uh was it Sentinel Prime or something? There yeah, he played he played the villain that he did a really good job. Yeah. Like, you know, he's a great actor. Um the other like the DeForest Kelly, Nichelle Nichols, pa- wow, pa- Pavel Chekhov. <laughs> um, what what's his first name? Koenig. What's his, Walter? Walter Koenig, um, and and George Takei and James Doohan. George Takei, George Takei has made, made a career it. out of being a, a a caricature of himself. Yeah, you know he was a, he was he was also movies. the announcer on Howard Stern, so yes. he he was able to get other work. Um, My favorite thing of all time with George Takei is where they prank call him pretending to be uh, Carlos Montalban. Ricardo. Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. And like (laughs) saying he's going on a Star Trek crew or uh, I don't know, Montalban's like, oh, I have some hookers coming over to the house. And George Takei is classic. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) It gets me every time because George Takei, I guess, just accepted that this guy called him up to tell him about hookers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. But uh I, I'm sure he's like kind of at some point suspecting that it might not be him, but also not wanting like not being sure enough to to just be like, Okay, fuck you. And, you know. <laughs> it's one of those things I can't listen to, I can't listen to it in the car because it just makes me laugh so hard. But uh yeah. um yes, George Takei has definitely, even in the last 10, 15 years, has has become a very uh social media active celebrity and has become one of the 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 flag bearers for this this progression of the LGBT community he's been like like one of the main voices behind that he's he's done an incredible job for himself um uh, being a voice that people listen to mm-hmm. uh and he's carried that very well um so now and that that went through but before the, all of that they did like we kind of mentioned before, have this second life of the original series as a series of movies. Yes. Uh, And they did a lot with, with the movies. I think they had six all together. Yeah. And it's, you know, what's really interesting to me is that the first movie was almost just a remake of that second pilot. That was the third episode of the, of the first series where they find an old Earth spacecraft and it leads to, like, the evolution of two otherwise throwaway male and female characters. Um, and it's just very interesting to me um, that it, it really... It was just an update of the pilot. Yeah, um, yeah. But and it had an incredible 10-minute yeah. shot of the Enterprise coming out. <laughs> you remember that when they first show off the, yeah. the new Enterprise? Yeah. And it's coming out of like a hangar. And literally, I believe it is like a seven to ten minute like cut of just how incredible the computer graphics of this well, ship look. I don't think looked. it's computer. Yeah, well. Because even, even Star Trek The Next Generation, which came out later, was actually still using models 
Yeah. Um, well, they were just showing off how great the ship yeah. looked. Um, yeah. So, and as a matter of fact, that just shows how how successful. Like they basically did with the first Star Trek movie, they did what what was just done with with Star Wars Episode Seven, where like the whole thing was just kind of rehashing in a loving way. Um, and think about how many people like collectively came in their pants when that yeah. that trailer dropped with the Millennium Falcon, <laughs> and then. Uh, Harrison Ford going, Chewie, we're home. Like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> oh, I need to leave my parents. Oh, but uh, <laughs> I need to leave my parents. <laughs> Not my parents, my pants. Oh, okay. okay I, need to leave I thought my- you were making the comment <laughs> that like anybody that was that jazzed about Star Wars must live with their parents. Oh, that too. But anyway, um, so we got the Star Trek the motion picture. Um, Star Trek Two, arguably the best Star Trek movie. Possibly ever. You didn't need to have the word Star Trek in that sentence. The Wrath of Khan, mm-hmm. where it is a sequel to an episode they actually had. A lot of people don't know this. Khan appeared as a as a, a minor villain in the show. Yeah. Where they just like at the end of the episode they just stranded him on this planet, and then the movie they actually he gets ended, off the planet. Yeah, he gets off the planet. And, like he's going yeah. for revenge, and he's a badass and yeah. awesome. Um, Star Trek uh, three. Well, let's be clear. The the one of the things that makes Star Trek two so powerful is the actual death of Spock. Yes. Um, and the Star Trek three is, is about the search for Spock. Yeah, which is which is interesting because trying to find heaven. Yeah. Well, what happens is through the Vulcan mind meld, uh, Spock basically just like downloads his whole fucking brain into into McCoy's brain. And and it's uh they're like he did it by USB 1.0. <laughs> we only have USB three. <laughs> Shit. Um, so yeah, so like his brains in McCoy, but his body because of the planet gets dumped on comes back. It's you know typical sci-fi crazy Damn it, bullshit. Jim, I'm not a Vulcan. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was a bunch of bunch of stuff that I I believe that they did not think that there would be a third movie. Uh, but but and so they. Pulled out all the stops, made to the best movie ever. And then when you're like, all right, guys, let's get ready for a third. It's like, fuck, well, we got to get Spock back. (laughs) That's the whole whole movie. Yeah, the whole thing is about getting Spock back. They get him back. Then you have the four. The Voyage Home, which which is box office, box office wise out of the original movies is the biggest in America. And it's the second biggest worldwide among Star Trek films. Of, uh, among the Star Trek original films. Yeah. And, and interestingly, it was a fairly low-budget thing because uh, compared to some of what you, what you would expect for, for a movie at that point in a series, you'd expect them to be constantly throwing more money at it. But, uh, but since the whole story is set up to send them back in time to 1980s Earth... It's a huge humor fest. It is a humor fest. <laughs> well, like the whole point of the like when when Spock's I've seen still that not movie, all there yet. Like he's not back to being himself, so yeah. he acts kind of crazy. That whole movie is like the points where they're just walking around Earth, like, "Oh, what the fuck is this?" And yeah. you know, you yeah. get all that humor out of it. And, and, they, and Scotty picks up a computer mouse and tries to shout into it because he's used to talking to his computers. I just got oh, got that. <laughs> 
Um, uh, and then um, five, the final frontier. Us, yeah, that introduces us to Spock's brother, who Spork. <laughs> <laughs> you laughed way too hard hard on that joke. Um, and they sort of meet God, except of course it's Star Trek. It's not really God. It's just a very powerful alien. Uh, <laughs> and then um, six is uh, the undiscovered country. Yeah, which, which six. For me, really has a lot of what makes Star Trek uniquely Star Trek in that it is, it ultimately it's a it's a movie that is about diplomacy and politics more than it is about fighting, um, and and uh, you know th- this is something that was referenced after the first start the rebooted Star Trek movie came out. There, you know, I, I saw a lot of funny videos online where people were like, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have what makes Star Trek Star Trek. You know, if I if I plunk down thirteen dollars to see a three D Star Trek movie, I I want to see two and a half hours of people sitting at a table talking. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Star Trek Six, of course, about. Uh, the the healing that obviously had to happen at some point before Star Trek: The Next Generation, where we the Earth and the Federation end up on good terms with Klingon, the Klingons who've been the big bad through the entire original series. Yeah, they're like the main yeah. per, uh, antagonists. Yeah. The one thing I'll give all of these movies. Some of the most beautiful posters for films I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. And really up until Star Trek Nemesis, which was the last Star Trek movie following a TV show they've had. Like yeah. that was the most generic looking. If you look, because that came out in 2002 and that just fits that 2002 movie poster just kind of fits in there. Yeah. The rest of them are just works of art that you, you would want to hang them up on your wall. They're that good. So... I, I would check those out if you've never seen the original posters because I'm not sure if they use the posters in like releases now. So I would I would definitely check those out. Yeah. Um, Let's see if we can throw up a link on our website. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who knows? <laughs> I was gonna say maybe I'll even throw the posters as the picture on Beatles.com, but uh, well, who knows? But I, look, the the original series has a lot of uh, a lot of things that we didn't touch on. This is. Um, the Star Trek as a as a franchise is something we can go back into many times. Next week we're going to be talking about um, the same characters, but in this new rebooted universe and and what has happened mm-hmm. thus far. What came because that it is incredible that they they the the thing the big thing now is to take old TV shows and reboot them. Yeah, uh, but Star Trek has done it incredibly. Yeah, I th- there's certainly as as a long time a lifelong. Uh, Trekker, I Trekkie. Nobody says Trekkie. Trekker. Trekkie monster. We self-identify as Trekkers. <laughs> uh, as a lifelong Trekker, there's many problems with these new movies. Things that bother me a lot, but but what they did right was casting. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I'm hearing that they're finally really starting to make good use of this amazing cast that they've got um for this new movie and i can't wait to see it myself yeah sounds good so thank you for for joining us this week in the uh in the starship beanhole and um 
We will see you here next week with more Star Trek trivia, action, and stuff to talk about. So keep on beaning. Harry Kendall.